Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, situated now in the new, special, deluxified So Very Wrong About Games studio, live from Dewey's basement. Yes. With me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker, and I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. Before we get started on our board game podcast about board games, where we're going to talk about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game, which this week is going to be Asgard's Chosen. Before we get started, a small clarification. Last week, we talked a little bit about the Kickstarter projects that have been pulled from both Indie Boards and Cards and from Colossal, and we mistakenly conflated Travis Chance from Colossal. Well, I did. We mistakenly conflated Travis Worthington of Indie Boards and Cards with Travis Chance of Colossal. We, we regret the error, but we stand by everything else we said, uh, specifically with respect to various projects being pulled off of Kickstarter because of possibly nebulous policies being applied in, uh, inconsistently. At any rate, with that solidly behind us, let us get into the games we played last week, and I'm going to start things off by talking once again about Just One. Just One has been nominated for the SDJ. It is a word party co-op game where with just a single word clue, you're supposed a clue somebody into what a word is, and if anybody gives the same clue as anybody else, all those clues get wiped and the person doesn't get to see them. And it's still very fun. I played three games back to back to back. It's relatively quick, great for new players, also good for gamers. It does, however, raise, the more I play it and the more frequently this is coming up, very serious metaphysical questions because you're not allowed to give a clue that is a straight synonym of the thing that you're trying to clue into. And then you start getting into fascinating questions. Is Aries a synonym for Mars? Well, probably, but maybe not. Is the North Star a synonym for the Morning Star? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Is magma a synonym for lava? Maybe, maybe not. And I have to say, despite the fact that I studied philosophy and I taught philosophy, a lot of people assume that I'm therefore endlessly fascinated with taxonomical discussions and questions such as, is hot dog a sandwich and other things like that? And let me tell you, people who do philosophy and indeed humanities more general don't find these questions interesting. They're usually willing to say, language is usage, call it a hot sandwich or not, as you see fit, whatever. Your taxonomy is of no interest to me. It doesn't change anything in the real world. So it's actually the best way to turn a philosopher into a pragmatist, because actually, generally, philosophers are pretty pragmatic as a rule. But the best way to turn them into a pragmatist is to get in these endless definitional discussions. But the ones in just one actually rise up quite a bit. So I'm not saying that's a substantial knock against the game. It's just an interesting feature emerging as we play. So that was my more recent experiences with just one, which still is the leading contender for Swag's recommendation for the uh, to win the Spiel des Jahres. Not that it matters. Yeah, even though I haven't played it. Yeah. Well, yeah, but your opinion doesn't matter. It's also true. So does the news. One of the games I played this week is Lords of Hellas. And I love Lords of Hellas. And it was in one of, I think, my top ten. If not, it should be in my top ten. We reviewed it one year ago. We'll talk about it next week. But I'm going to talk about it now. Fantastic game. Fantastic components. 
it is the one game I wish I had in my collection. Like you, I just got uh, Yokohama and I've got my Orleans and I think, uh, I think uh, Lords of Hellas is the one game I wish I had a complete copy of. Well, I'll see what I can do about that. This is a such an obscure, silly question. So you played on a copy that did not have the sun drop effect. Correct. You in the past had expressed a strong appreciation for the sun drop effect. How did you feel that the non-sun drop copy looked in comparison? It was fine. I, I think I preferred uh, like the the player pieces as just the straight colors. The hoplites? The hoplites and the heroes. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really like the monsters and the and monuments. The God, and yep. the monuments when they're like really big. I like them all sun dropped. They look fascinating. And I, I made an effort to start to, you know, start teaching rules myself for a change. Because Mark and I usually always play together. When I play, Mark is usually there. And I'm sort of losing the skill of, you know, teaching games. So I, I, I demanded that I, I got to choose to uh, teach Lords of Hells. I'm glad I did. And we had, everyone had a great time. There was like, a, it was a three-player game. Two other players were brand new to the game. They loved it. I still love Lords of Hellas. It It is really good. I'm very much looking forward to the new stuff coming out. There have been some initial reports that there's some component mismatching, which, you know, is, is kind of par for the course for expansions. Cards not matching, boards not lining up, things like that. Somewhat disappointing when it's all part of the same Kickstarter project. And I have to say, Awakened Realms, which is the publisher, everyone seems to love them, but I don't really like them. I, I, I dislike a lot of the stuff that they put out other than Lords of Hellas. And I don't like a lot of their standards with respect to publishing. But anyway, that, that that's mostly borderline ad hominem stuff. But we're very much looking forward to getting the new stuff, trying all the uh, all the great Lords of Hellas goodness. And I'm glad you had such, such a great time. I really do think that it is a fabulous game. And as far as elaborated dudes on a map games, you could do a hell of a lot worse than Lords of Hellas. So. Exactly. I got to play a game of Combat Commander Europe, which is a GMT game. So, of course, it wasn't with Walker. Combat Commander is, uh, to my estimation, sort of the definitive entry-level squad-based World War II game, and its comprehensiveness is truly a joy. It will cover, you know, everything from Soviet agents dealing with Finnish Sisu troops and Yugoslavian partisans fighting against uh, occupations and, you know, Greeks fighting whatever. And, of course, the standard business of Eastern Front German units against standard Soviet forces or or Americans or what have you also has a great representation for, for Canadians. Anyway, the random scenario generator for Combat Commander is a joy. And that's normally how I play Combat Commander. I don't really play these scenarios. I play the Make Your Own Scenario system, which is marvelous. And we ended up with a very, very... I'm going to say borderline degenerate situation where the Germans were holding a bridge very, very close to the deployment area of the Americans who were then tasked to take the bridge. And it was a meat grinder. It was just a straight meat grinder scenario where the Germans had massive and withering machine gun fire and the Americans just needed to either pull something off with artillery, get really lucky, or manage to swarm with enough numbers to overcome it. They were able to do none of those three things. And we felt that the scenario didn't really show the the, the system to its finest. But even in those contexts, even in a borderline degenerate case where the scenario details aren't particularly compelling, I really like Combat Commander and I really stand by it. A lot of wild things are going to happen, but in terms of this nebulous feature of games that tell stories of a narrative that emerges from the events that happens, I think that Combat Commander is tough to beat for any kind of game, really. You know, lots of narrative style games, whether it's Seventh Continent or, or things like that, where you're reading these paragraphs of flavor text and I just get bored and I'm not engaged at all. On the other hand, Combat Commander, every game is a story to me. And, you know, the time when Fritz the hero showed up and rallied his guys and charged across the field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I really do recommend it. If, if you're looking to get into Wargaming, Combat Commander is a very, very, very light one. But it still has lots of historical detail. And for what it's worth, I'll mention again, it has the single greatest rulebook that I've ever read in terms of clarity of presentation and for quantity of pure Elliot Trudeau quotes. So my highest possible recommendation for Combat Commander, if that is your kind of thing. And uh, it also has vague evocations of Upfront, the, the old uh, Avalon Hill classics. So had another great play of Combat Commander. All right, I've been toting Baron Park around, and everywhere it goes, it gets pulled out and played, and I got to sit in on a game the other night, two-player game, with a fairly new player, and they loved it. It's another, you know, Tetris-type, we've talked about Baron Park many times, comes with a advanced rule, which is these, you know, goals you have to try for, I just suggest that you always play them with them no matter what. Baron Park, yet another big hit. I'm really looking forward to trying the goals. It will probably emphasize the spatial orientation aspect of the game, which is not really playing my strengths, but, you know, it sounds good. Played another game of Corporate America. Corporate America is, again, a relatively light negotiation haggling game that is also a very excellent satire of American politics and of American corporate culture. I really do think that a lot of the jokes are are pretty solid, and the overall structure of the game, and even in some of the rules, there are these lovely little gestures to the absurdity of a lot of institutional life in the U.S. And this is not a dig on the uh, on the United States. I think you could make something equally as ridiculous making fun of Canadian institutional life. It just so happens that, you know, there's less demand because nobody cares about Canada. And it was uh, a four-player game, and it was one of, the, one of the hallmarks of a good negotiation game, I think, is that the haggling starts right away. And in corporate America, there are all these lovely little transactions where you're inclined to throw money at people or to try to exert favors for any number of things. And it's just constant. It's not a grind. It's not constant and grindy in the same way that Serial Confluence or even something like New Angeles is, although I, I, I do like both of those games. And it's much, much quicker than either of those games. It's just a lot of so-called negotiation games, and more on this in a second, don't give you enough cause to, to aggressively negotiate. Because you look at the board, or, the board and say, look, I'm not in a position to pay you enough to make you do something other than what you would do otherwise. But in corporate America, money's changing hands all the time these great little decision points, these great little points of pressure and temporary emergent alliances, it kind of flew under the radar. And uh, it, it, I think corporate America is genuinely underappreciated, but I'm glad I got it to the table again and everyone had a good time and some good laughs. And we all hated each other by the end of the game, which is a sign of an excellent negotiation game. And that was corporate America. I also played another Uwe Rosenberg game, Baron Park being one and Ray Holt being no, another. No, 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 stop, no. No. <laughs> What if people don't know if it's a joke? It's funny. That's why that's <laughs> we know funny. we know Uwe Rosenberg didn't design Baron Park. So I played Ray Holt again, and every time I play it, it does seem like it is a it is definitely an entry level game, but I still have fun playing it. There are definitely different avenues that you can pursue. There are cards that can be special abilities. You're trying to you know uh, get your you know vegetable producing engine going faster than everybody else there are there is a little bit of decision space beating people to certain spaces and i still have fun playing it it's definitely not a game that i would choose to play but given the right crowd if you're like in a, in a starter crowd or something a little lighter this is definitely you know keeps you engaged and it's still fun to play and that's ray holt by Uwe rosenberg played my second game of Burning Suns. I talked about Burning Suns a few weeks ago. This is a sort of a 4X game designed by Emil Larson that was kickstarted many years ago, and many people still don't have their copies. But the first time we played, it was a four-player short game, and I felt that it was a very, very solid entry in a sort of 
90 to 120 minute 4X game. And I didn't understand why, where a lot of the criticisms were coming from. Well, now I played a three player short game and now I understand where a lot of the criticisms are coming from because I think that four player, this is the benefit of playing games multiple times. You know, as a reviewer, this is, this is not news to me. The three player setup and in a short game increases the point horizon a little bit, as you would expect. And I think that four players in a short game is just about perfect because the way the port thresholds work, the game ends when someone hits a certain number of points. And like many 4X games, initially you just start gobbling up uninhabited or loosely defended systems that, that are just garrisoned by whatever troops the game says they have, rather than directly taking them from other players. And then, after that, you start looking for those other incidental points, and then you start introducing the friction with, with, with players. And of course, there's a balance there. Especially in a game like Burning Suns, where you can take points from other people. This isn't a game where everyone's constantly climbing up, you can steal points from people. And if the point threshold is too high, well, then that could lead to stalemates or just the game outstaying its welcome or things feeling very grindy. And that's kind of what happened with three players. The game was was much longer than it should have been. It was uh, in excess of two and a half hours, whereas I think the depth of Burning Suns is, is, is ideal at 90 to 120 minutes. And uh, with four, it was very quick and very brisk, but with three, it kind of was a bit more of a slog. And so I'm beginning to think that unsurprising, given that it's a first-time designer, it might be a very fragile game system, and it really only works under certain ideal conditions. And so I don't know if I'm going to try to get Burning Sense to the table again, certainly not at three players. I don't think I'd want to do that, and I don't think I'd ever want to play the long game, because just slapping on an extra couple points for the threshold to end the game would just emphasize that grindiness and just waiting for someone to get lucky and get that right combination as points swing back and forth. And, uh, I mean, I still think the systems are fundamentally smooth and pleasant. I just don't think that it wants to be in a situation where it can outstay its welcome. So I was somewhat disappointed by my second play of Burning Suns, and I'm not sure I'll be uh, cankering to get get it to the table. And I can certainly say that the two people I played with most recently were not fans and would probably not ask for it again. So that was Burning Suns. All right. Well, that reminded me of a game that I don't have my list that you and I played when it talked about, you know, fragile at a certain player count. Mark and I got 51st State to the table. And it made me think that I think it's a very fragile game at at two players. Only because if one person is getting an unlucky card draw or is not getting the cards he needs or not getting particular cards that he needs, then there's not that third person to try to balance it out, to stop someone else's engine. I wasn't getting any attacking cards, nor did my the faction that I have generate much attacking. So I, there's nothing that I could get to stop Mark's engine from increasingly ramping up whereas if there was that third person then they might have had something and you know we would have been able to tag team and and do something about it as it was you know it was sort of like a runaway by the end we tried out the new expansion which we both loved as allies it put in some very key uh player interaction that didn't seem forced at all it really flowed in the game and what's really good about this expansion it's just pretty well shuffle it in and you're ready to go there's a few extra tokens but they're very easy to implement into the game not much there but it really adds a lot to the game that's fits for state with the allies expansion so i don't know about fragility with player count mostly what i heard was you whining that i'm so much smarter and handsomer than you are and maybe that's true maybe that isn't but I've never felt that it was particularly fragile at any player count, but maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I just need to pay more attention when we're playing two players. But I definitely agree with you that the Allies expansion set is the best of the bunch. Now, with 51st State Master Set, there are the two that come in the base box, which I 
as as we commented in our review of Fifty First State Master Set, I didn't find the base game quote unquote expansions were particularly outstanding. And Scavengers was kind of okay, but Allies I think is is really good. It really changes up the game in an interesting way. The new resource that it introduces is very very interesting, both thematically and mechanically. And this was co-designed by Ignacy Trevichek, who designed Fifty First State, and uh, Joanna Kajanka. I'm, I'm, I apologize if I'm, if I'm butchering her name. And uh, she's actually involved in co-designing the new Imperial Settlers base set. And I have to wonder if it was her input that made things uh, quite different from all the other stuff, which was just done by Trevichek. And so I'm very much looking forward to her future output. In the past, she's just done expansion work for Portal and, you know, in in, uh, development work for Portal. And so as she designs more stuff, I'm very much looking forward to what comes out. Because, yeah, Allies delivers an excellent shot in the arm to a game that we both already really like. And it really did offer more variety than I think the other expansions did. So I was a huge fan of Allies, and I'm looking forward to playing more 51st State Master Set with it. Finally got a chance to try Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall is something that has been requested by one of our listeners, actually. The dark, the deep, dark secret of how manipulable we are here at So Very Wrong About Games is if somebody shows up on the Guild on Facebook and says, hey have you tried this game? I'm probably going to try to track down a copy. Now, sometimes this has worked out very, very well for us. This is how we were introduced to Gaslands. This is how we were introduced to Kalamala. And the latest instance of this is Tammany Hall. Now, Tammany Hall is an area majority game, which I will I will always be down to try a new area majority game. New being relative here because it was released in 2007. And on top of that is added a sort of a blind bidding system with a kind of pretext of negotiation. I say pretext because this is one of the red flags with respect to Tammany Hall. This is one of those games that says in the rulebook and says in its presentation, make alliances, make deals, backstab, blah, 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 blah. But you can't trade anything with anyone. And I often find in games that you that want to have that dynamic or say they have that dynamic, where there's no actual ability to make deals other than just the emergent board state, you often end up, as I said, in the context of what corporate America doesn't do, everyone just staring at the board and saying, well, my interests are clear, your interests are clear, okay, let's just go do our thing, which is kind of what happens in Rising Sun. I was just about to say the exact same thing. Yeah. And in Rising Sun, you have currency that you can Exactly. Pay. Even and despite the fact that you can pay people, you end exactly. up having that Rising Sun. Exactly. Uh, so I was worried that was going to happen, and I'm also very, very loath to have games where there's lots of blind bidding. Blind bidding can be desperately unsatisfying. It can feel very arbitrary. And it's pretty much my least favorite method of bidding. And it is one of my least favorite methods of resolution. QB also Rising Sun, but the blind bidding of Rising Sun is okay. I don't, I don't mind that too much. Anyhow, suffice to say that my experience, my first experience with Tammany Hall, it was only with three players, which I don't think is ideal. I think Tammany Hall wants more, but I was very pleased. First of all, the rule set is very, very, very light. It's very approachable. What you do in your turn is very simple, but it really emphasizes the trade-offs you need to make about the territories you fight, about the investments you need to make. As far as the blind bidding goes, I kind of liked how transparent it was at the outset about how you and I will be fighting over a series of territories, and these are the resources that we have to fight over those territories. And so you have to be really careful about where you spend and how and when you fight and what you give up. In other words, it's very much like an area majority game. So it felt to me more like an extension of those good kind of trade-offs in an area majority game that I really enjoy, rather than the arbitrariness of some blind bidding economic games. Further to which, the whole issue of making deals and kind of short-term alliances kind of sort of did manifest. I had a sort of runaway first round of Tammany Hall, and the other two players then decided that they weren't going to fight amongst each other ever. They were only ever going to contest me so as to try to uh, hobble my progress, which was entirely reasonable, and it kind of sort of worked out. 
I it, it definitely had a, a a bit of a runaway leader problem ish in this specific game context. I don't know if that's the fault of the game or an unusual feature of how we did things, but they were able to make inroads into what seemed like an insurmountable lead, and they definitely did better once they started colluding with each other. Now, is this going to indicate that there's you know solid negotiation elements here? I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing. I want to try it with more players. Definitely at least four. And there were a lot of really neat bits about what regions you want to fight for and when and how and the different political roles that get handed out. The theming is 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 relatively decent. You get to engage in lots of fake racism, which, you know, is whatever. Like, you know, deciding because you're the chief of police, you need to round up all the German immigrants because they don't like you and you want to win their neighborhoods. Um, this is actually something you can do in the game. I don't know if that's your bag, uh, but in the context of 19th century municipal politics, uh, maybe that kind of stuff happened. Anyhow, so that level of awkwardness and uh, a sort of brutal theming uh, for it. Tammany Hall, as I say, was was interesting and pleasant, but we did not try it under ideal circumstances. So I'm looking forward to trying it with more and seeing what happens when there's possibly less of a runaway leader situation. But thanks again to our listenership for the recommendations. Keep them coming and probably more details on Tammany Hall to follow. All right, my last thing is just an electronic thing. If uh, Codenames is your bag, then there's an app called Heads Up, and it's much lighter than Codenames. It's pretty well, you know, one word will flash up. You put your little cell phone or electronic device above your head so everyone can see it but you, and then they have to try to get you to guess the words, and you have to guess, guess so many in a particular amount of time, and you flip it one way or the other if you get it wrong or, or right or if you want to pass. And there's all sorts of different categories and, and, and different ways to play. Apparently, they play it on a show called Ellen DeGeneres. I have never seen it. I have no idea what it's about. But apparently, it's her game. So I don't want to not give her props <laughs> for it. So it's called Heads Up. And we, we had a ball playing it. Played it for about two hours with children and a family. And it was amazing, good fun. So now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first up, and this actually uh, kind of does matter, I talked earlier about Combat Commander Europe. Combat Commander and a number of other games were designed by Chad Jensen. And uh, Chad Jensen is currently undergoing chemotherapy. He was recently diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he's going to be uninsured for a portion of that treatment. And given that he's in in, in the United States, that means it's going to be very, very expensive. He's got a GoFundMe. And I can certainly say personally that Combat Commander and the works of Chad Jensen have given me a lot of enjoyment over the years, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of throwing some support his way. A link to the GoFundMe will be in the episode description, uh, so if you are inclined to go check that out, please do. My bit of news, we've already talked about it. Seems talk about board games after that, but whatever, just a second. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of the nature of the show. All right, so we've already talked about this game before, but now it's actually seems to be out and able to pick it up. It's a dexterity game called Tuki. It's yet another, you know, block stacking type game where you get a couple of images that you have to stack these blocks together. I don't know if there's a time limit, but, you know, stack them up so it matches the picture. But it comes with these white blocks that you use to support the other blocks that are sort of, I guess, invisible blocks so they don't actually count towards the picture, you know what I mean? So it looks very interesting. Looking forward to trying it. You add more cards to make it harder. Looks great. Can't wait to play it because we hate dexterity games. It looks to me more like a puzzle game than a dexterity game, and I don't like puzzles. So you you can try to get me enthusiastic, but it's not going to happen. I'll try it. You get stacked blocks, Mark. 
Yeah, the sacking part I like, but deciding where or what blocks to go what. I mean, in the context of junk art, where I just need to follow my inner muse, that's fine. Or in Men at Work, which we still haven't tried. Yeah, I guess uh, they don't like Canada. Yeah, it's so... just no, no Men at Work for Canada. Second bit of news is uh, Queen Games is opening a web store. And I mentioned this because finally this is going to be a chance for people to track down their stupid freaking queenies. Because every Queen game for the past 10 years has had like 17 mini expansions that are only available if you go to the right convention and mention the code word out back to the guy unloading them off a truck. But now finally... <laughs> you got to slip them, you slip them the, the secret token from your haversack and you get... You yeah, get something like that. Anyway, so now... And they didn't even know what they were at first because you went to their page and they would say, included is the queenie. And it's like, well, what is that? Well, and sometimes they were just, you know, an extra tile or something, but sometimes they would be something relatively substantial. We ran into this the same problem with respect to 51st State Master Set. Like, we really like the faction, the, the new faction boards. Uh, I, I think they add a really new, interesting way to play, and they really kind of change the nature of the engine you're trying to build. And some of them are available only as promos, or when you pre-order for the Portal Games store. At least there, it's transparent. You know, go to Portal Games, you, you throw money at them, and then they will send it to you. You know, commerce. And now Queen Games is now moving in that direction, too. So they're going forward, they say they're going to try to make it easier for you to go and get your queenies. I don't know if they're going to be consistent with this, but it's at least a step in the right direction. So here's hoping that they maintain this this new era of transparency and availability for all of their sundry expansions for, you know, every game they put out. Yeah, maybe they'll put out a game that we'll actually want to play. Well, that too. Next is, uh, we talked about the butterfly game, Papillon or Butterfly. Papillon. It's back up on Kickstarter. I so actually ran excited. A, I ran a, a little bit of a survey on Twitter for people who don't speak French about how they would say the name of the game. And the consent, the rough consensus appears to be Papillon. Papillon. There we go. Papillon, the butterfly game is back on Kickstarter. So check it out. I'm not even going to say what company is, uh, is, <laughs> is Kickstarting it because who knows, you know, what header they put it under this time. Some but, number uh, of Travis's may or may not be involved. This is, this is, this is true. And, uh, it looks great as, as usual. I can't wait to play the, the butterfly game. Well, let's hope it, it runs to completion this time. So Modifius Entertainment released a miniatures game for Fallout not too long ago called Fallout Wasteland Warfare. And now they've announced that there's going to be one for Elder Scrolls, which, is kind of weird. I mean, I'm a, I am I play all the Bethesda games, all the Elder Scrolls games, and all the, the, the Fallout games. I can't remember the last time I finished one, though. Mostly, you know, you wander around, you get some get some yucks, but the story's not very compelling, so I never bother to, to, to cross the finish line. Uh, and they're going to be... the One of the interesting things about these product lines, both of them, is that the expansion packs are in resin, which is an odd move. It's an understandable move, but it's a, not necessarily a very usual one. Resin is easier to mold and easier to cast, but the basic, the uh, materials are more expensive, so the per mini cost is higher, but that's only when you ignore the cost of the molds, which tend to be very considerable for such things. I'm vaguely curious about trying the Fallout Wasteland Warfare uh, minis game, primarily because I've heard very good things about the solo mode in terms of little campaign details and little narrative flourishes, and apparently the AI is quite interesting, somewhere between an incredibly tedious and cumbersome automated card system and a, 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 a sort of trivial move towards the nearest target and attack. So somewhere, somewhere in the, in the middle. And if they can get some, something in the sweet spot there, then I'd be very interested in trying that. I'm less interested in the Elder Scrolls universe because quite frankly, you know, although I could get reasonably engaged with whatever character I was playing, I just it's like, okay, these are the Catmen. 
these are the Imperials. What are Imperials? Oh, just generic white guys. Okay, whatever. So <laughs> send all your hate mail to support at aircanada.ca. So Modifius will be releasing a new line of Elder Scrolls minis. And uh, as I say, if I end up trying the Fallout one, I will uh, let you know. Now on to our feature game, which this week is Asgard's Chosen. So Asgard's Chosen was put up by Morgan Dauntonville and Mayfair Games in 2013. This is a bit of a, this is, you can consider this the kind of sort of inaugural episode of Mark and Walker talk about really obscure games that they like. Well, I guess really obscure is, is an exaggeration. It's got about 150 ratings on BoardGameGeek. It is not exactly very mainstream, it isn't talked about much and it isn't even very well regarded. It's got an average rating under seven on Board Game Geek, which I think is borderline criminal. And the this was one of those instances of a designer releasing something after I'd already been following their comments on Board Game Geek for some for some time. This is definitely true of the designer of Cataclysm. I was already interested in Cataclysm, and then I saw, oh, it's somebody's Scott Muldoon. He's been a geek buddy of mine for years. And so the same the same is true of uh, Morgan Dauntonville because the only other stuff that he's done uh, as design credits is kind of sort of like Joanna Kajanka at, at Portal. He did like, you know, work on this promo here, work on this expansion there. But in terms of being the credited designer of a full game, Asgard's Chosen is pretty much it, which is a bit of a shame. And this is back when Mayfair was a thing. Mayfair is now defunct. In 2013, they were already starting their decline. Their heyday was definitely before that, when it was pretty much just them and Rio Grande, as far as Euro games were concerned. Uh, so, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Asgard's Chosen? So, Asgard's Chosen is a deck-building area control game. You get your starting hand of uh, seven cards, which is from a deck of ten gods, and you're going to do a little bit of drafting at the beginning. So you might have a couple of extra cards in there. And then you're looking at your hand, and you're deciding which gods you're going to utilize this turn. Because some you have a chance at, they have two parts on each god card. It's something that's going to help you, and then a victory condition of some kind. And so you sort of look at them and say, is there any chance at all that I can obtain this victory condition this turn? You sort of put them to the side, and then you're going to use the other gods and other cards in your hand to help you get those victory conditions. Because... What you're going to do on a given turn is move two heroes around the board and attack an area or attack another player. So you're going to do uh, one action with a hero, and then everyone else does one action with a hero, and then you're going to activate your other hero unless they've been, you know, uh, taken out for that turn. And then you're going to get a chance to buy cards. So not only do you need your cards to attack, because then they'll get discarded, you have to make sure you save some to buy more units to improve your deck. That is Asgard's Chosen. See, even just listening to you talk about it, I'm getting excited again. Now, I just want to make make absolutely clear. Asgard's Chosen has some problems with it, but there are things that it does that are so unique and differentiate it from a lot of other Ulcerans in a genre that every time I get to play or even just thinking about it, I get enthusiastic because it's so neat. I'm going to start with one of the things you talked about, and that is specifically the god cards. In deck-building games, all deck-building games, whether they're incredibly simplified deck-building games like the Shards games or the the, the Realms games, or even the hyper-elaborated games that are barely deck-builders anymore like Mage Knight, they all have a fundamental question, which is how do you deal with your starting junk? Because your starting cards are always going to be worse. Now, there's another way to do it, just as a, as a minor aside. You could do things the way Martin Wallace did in A Study in Emerald and make your starting cards better than the cards you acquire, but then you end up with a trash game. But in Asgard's Chosen, what you do with the garbage cards is fascinating because in one way they're trash because they're just value one. They contribute one towards combat and they contribute one towards buying things, which is awful. 
But on the other hand, they're the most important cards of the game because they are your victory conditions. You have 10 different gods and 10 different victory conditions that you need to satisfy. Now, how many you satisfy is a function of what kind of game you run. The, the rule book suggests anywhere from four to seven, more on that later. But so you absolutely need them and you get to look at your hand and decide which of these can I make a play for this round? Which of these can I not? And furthermore, more broadly in a more strategic uh, level, you can know that you need to start building towards some of these other ones even if you can't do them this round. And it is such a novel approach to what to do with starting garbage cards. It, I, I adore it. Well, let's just hit on – I want to hit on that before we go any further because all 10 of these cards are all different victory conditions. And all 10 of these also give you a Benny if you place them as your main card for that turn. And all of those special Bennies are all completely different as well. And in order to uh, achieve an objective, the card still has to be in your hand. So you can't put it at the beginning of the turn. You can't have used it for anything else. When you satisfy the victory condition, then you put it out and you put it to the side. But that is another really cool choice that you have to make because once you've scored that, it goes off to the side. So that's great. You're getting towards victory condition, but now you can no longer get that benefit that that god could give you. That is to say that's not fantastic. They're all useful, but I don't really think that is a huge decision space because, you know, they're they're great abilities. But getting those victory points out when you can is definitely... Uh, the most important part. Let's stay on the cards. I just want to keep going just because I want to stay on the actual cards themselves because this game does something that I wish almost every other game did or I wish they would do, sorry. And that is that when there's an ability or something that triggers or or when you should play the card is usually when it has, it'll have a symbol and every phase of the game has a symbol and every rule on the card has a symbol beside it. So you know exactly when that card needs to be played. No questions asked. So you can look through your hand and say, oh, it's the quest phase. Do I have any quest cards? No, because I don't have any cards with the quest symbol. Boom, done. It's the mustering phase. Do I have any mustering cards? No, because I don't have any symbols. It's such a simple little thing that you can do to your cards and it makes the game way, way more enjoyable. To my mind, I think this is actually one of those borderline negatives to attach to the game, to be frank, because in Asgard's Chosen, once you are familiar with the system, and familiarity will take some number of games, I don't know how many, but we've both played it a fair number of times now, it is absolutely a breeze. But when you are first learning the game, your first couple of games, it's actually very, very daunting because it is not uncommon, whether it's on a god card or anything else, for there to be an icon to say you plays it in, play it in, say, phase two, and then... It will give you a benefit in, say, phase four, and that is made made clear in the text of the card. Now, for you and I, we've done this before. It's no problem. We were able to parse both the icon and the text, but that disagreement about timing, I play it now, but I get the benefit later, especially if you're not thoroughly familiar with the turn structure, can be intimidating to new players. Because one of the things that I've noticed in card games, and I'm starting to appreciate this more and more as I become more experienced with card games, if there's ever a question about when you get to play a certain card, that can be incredibly frustrating for new players because, you know, they, they wait too long and then they try to play a card and you tell them, well, you were supposed to do that five turns ago or whatever. That's not fun. Or someone says, ah, I'm going to play this card now. It's like, no, 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 you don't get to play it now. You only get to play it when it's raining on a Tuesday or whatever. It's not bad in Asgard Chosen, and I agree with you. It, it gets very transparent. But during the initial learning hurdle, it can be considerable. It's just very useful because to score a god, you can only score... Uh, one god per phase so in that particular region it's very helpful because you know then you know that you know uh, because i have two symbols that both score in the mustering i know i can only play one of them so therefore i can only score one of these gods this turn you know which which one should i play which one am i going to you know 
definitely have next turn. Which one can I hang on to? I agree with you entirely. And again, as someone who appreciates the game and has played it a number of times, it's marvelously transparent. But just to give one specific tangible example, the way you appear is t- uh, appease Tyr, who, by the way, is clearly the best mythological god in the Norse pantheon or indeed of po- possibly any pantheon ever, if you disagree, fight me in real life. The the way you appease Tyr is by controlling five or more regions and then sacrificing control in a couple regions, and then you appease Tyr. Now, normally you might expect, okay, so I do this during the campaign phase because that's when I acquire new regions, and that's when you appease the other gods that are a function of controlling a certain number of terrains. But no, Tyr you appease during the mustering phase after the campaign phase is done. And again, for me, that's no problem. For you, that's no problem. But for new players, it can be a little bit confusing. Well, that's why I like the symbols. Sure, Absolutely. All right, let's some things before we get the monster. The mon- there's uh, all sorts of monsters that you're going to summon. It summon like you're going to, like I said, you might get some at the very beginning of the game. Uh, you're going to be uh, drafting them after every you know campaign phase. The art on these cards is amazing, and the combat because the not only do, does every god have two very unique abilities, every creature also has like a very distinct combat ability. That will only trigger, I'll get more back on this train thing later, but will only trigger if it's on the right train, but still the fact that there are over 10 different kinds of creatures and they all have a distinct, you know, combat type ability or some sort of an ability that, you know, lets them, lets you pick them back up or will trigger off of other things or, and none of them seem too overpowering except for one maybe. And <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that later, of course, but. And and it's and it's one of these things that really keeps you in the game because you're looking at your cards, you're planning out your turn, you're seeing which cards are going to you know give you the most benefit this turn, and how you can combo them up, and and this is the what you know makes this game uh, really interesting and engaging for sure. So the theming, I think, is relatively well done. The thematic integration on a deep level is not particularly good. But in terms of the trappings of Norse mythology, I think they did a very, very good job. As I made somewhat clear in my, uh, well, let's call it a review, but it was really more of a rant about Champions of Midgard. I'm a big fan of Norse mythology, and I really hate it when a game tries to gesture towards Norse mythology, but doesn't really infuse it very much in the theme. But as we've already said, you start off with 10 different god cards, and so you already have somewhat thematically appropriate conditions applying to them. And the artwork is great, uh, depending on all these different Norse gods. And also there's just this deluge of different Norse monsters that you get to recruit into your into your deck and or army. And so you really do get a lot of the graphical touches and a lot of the thematic overtures of Norse mythology, which is absolutely great. And also th- this, this dovetails with something that I really want to emphasize right away, because you, you talked about how you, look, you have to look at your hand of cards and you have to ask yourself a series of questions. Which gods can I appease? How am I going to do the campaign phase? What can I buy? And to, for me, this is hand management at its finest, because it is not going to be possible, especially in the early game, to be able to do all of those things. Win two fights, appease a god, buy buy something you want to buy. So you have to make trade-offs. You have to say, okay, I'm only going to fight once this round, but then I'm going to be able to buy these things because I've saved the currency to be able to do that. Or I can't appease anyone this round, or I could, but it would be too costly. So it would be smarter for me to hold off and do it later when it will cost me less. These are the elements of hand management that are wonderful and I think are a lot more... 
give you a lot more control than a lot of other hand management games where it's a function of random draws. Because here, yes, of course there's random draws, you're shuffling your deck and so forth, but you really have to look at your hand of seven cards and figure, what am I going to do with this this round? And that those are the hand management decisions that I love. And I think Asgard's chosen because it has these campaign phases followed by the muster phase, that element of, of deck, deck building where you're buying cards. It just really brings it, it brings these trade-offs to the fore in a way that I love. Yeah, I just want to go back to that because it sort of goes in because of the the victory conditions like we said there's 10 different ones on all these god cards and i really think they did a great job because you don't really get shut out of anything do you see what i'm saying yep it's because you know you might be really being pushed down to one territory or you might be getting nuked in some areas but they're so uh varied that you can say okay well i'm just going to concentrate on buying a whole bunch of creatures or i'm going to you know pass cards to other people or i'm going to do these other things and there's a built-in catch-up mechanism there because the ones that are based on territory control in order to appease them you have to sacrifice that control or some of it there's the loki card that requires that you give cards away to other players there's the odin card that requires that you get rid of a lot of items so you have to make these costly decisions and then most of the time these victory conditions are achieved by by sacrificing either board position or the quality of your deck, which actually brings me to another great point, which is that a lot of deck builders don't do uh, or can't even be in a position to do the buying when you're actually buying the cards, it dovetails with your board position. Where you are on the board influences how you're able to buy cards. And in turn, the cards that you buy influence what kind of territories you're going to be in a position to take over uh, later on. And so there's this marvelous interplay with respect to what's going on that even other games that have board position, like Mage Knight, like Train, like even Automobiles or things like that, where there's a board element to the deck building, they don't have that tight interconnectedness. And that in turn gives you lots of flexibility with respect to what the gods can do and what the items can do, because a lot of them allow you to ease some of those restrictions, allowing you yet further strategic control at the start of your turn, saying, I really need to buy these cards. Okay, I have to plan for this. I need to set myself up. All right, let's go over some good points. I think we hit almost all my good parts. Great art, simple, clean game, great flow, because like I said, you have two heroes on the board, a male and a female. They're designated with like little counters. Uh, So when it's your turn, you're going to move one of them. On your next turn, you're going to move the other one. Then you go into the draft. Done. But the interesting part about that is that you get to, you can maybe hamstring one of your opponents because you can nullify one of their heroes before they get to act. So therefore they're only going to get one action this turn. So that's another great, you know, decision space in there. Symbols for every phase we already talked about. What's the other one? Moving your heroes. So on your turn, you're going to move your hero. And if you move into an opponent's area that they control, you fight them for it. Or if you move into a neutral territory, you're going to fight them for it. But the awesome part about moving your hero, it's much like, Many games do this where you can freely move through all areas you control so that you're never, you know, blocked in or feel as though you can't get to where you need to go because you can freely move through all of the territories you control and then attack out from from uh, from there. And I wish more games did that because it, it's easily because you're doing it in all these war games. Okay, you're, you know, advancing these guys move here and then the, those guys will move. You know, it's this weird chain effect, whereas in real life, they would all just push forward one space and then you know, you'd get those troops right away. So I don't know why more games don't do it that way. I don't know about it in real life, but yes, it's very dynamic. It's a very confrontational game. And it, furthermore, sometimes you do end up building yourself into a corner, but it's always your fault. 
In games of Asgard's Chosen where I've done really badly or where I've hamstrung myself, it's again because I got overambitious, I appeased a god sooner than I should have, it's because I didn't think about what my next turn was going to be. Very rarely is it the case that someone attacks me for no reason and then I'm completely hamstrung. Usually when they attack me, I should have seen it coming or I should have been able to put myself in a position where I had an exit strategy. So despite the fact that you can fight other people, you can take each other's ter territories, in addition to that marvelous little sort of catch-up mechanic that I talked about in terms of a using gods, there's the strong element of knowing how your board position is going to evolve. And it is absolutely wonderful in that sense. That's all my good points. Do you have any other points you want to make before I go on to bad points? Let us let us let us speak of the bad, because despite my enthusiasm for Asgard's chosen it, I think it has some relatively significant downsides. So it's 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 another one of these luck of the draw games. So Depending on on your board position, when you draft, you know, you could lose out on things you need. But the biggest part of the luck of the draw comes when you go to attack. Because when you attack a neutral territory, you're going to be drawing off this deck of monsters to see what there is defending. Now, what can happen when you draw off this deck? You could get events that don't do anything. You could get items that don't do anything. Or you could get uh, monsters that don't uh, work well in that particular train. So therefore they're thrown away as well. So some people might have to fight, you know, two overpowered monsters. Other people might have to fight nothing. So you're, you're really under the luck of the draw. Sometimes it can be very punishing sometimes. And this is the same thing when you attack another player, because they also get defenders and a bodyguard. So you could really, you know, sometimes get a bad luck of the draw. I'm not super concerned about that because generally speaking, if you're going to attack something, you should expect to have to pay for it. Sometimes people do get terrains effectively for free, and that can be a little bit frustrating when you yourself have run up against the roadblock of a giant troll and a dragon over and over again. And I respect the fact that that might, that might be awkward, but it happens so often that I find that it, it normalizes itself rather neatly. The thing that I find a little bit more uh, tricky, but again planning can mitigate this, is something like appeasing Odin. Odin says, in order to appease Odin, you need to get rid of three different items. It's like, well, you may have five items in your deck, but you need to make sure that at least three of them are in your hand at a given time to appease Odin, as well as the Odin card. Now, in context where you have to carefully plan that out and hold on to those cards from round to round and to appease Odin, that's fine. But when it just lands in someone's lap where on a random draw of seven cards, they got those four that they needed, that is a little bit less satisfying. But honestly, on the, and I, so I agree with you that there's a fair amount of luck of the draw, but on the scale of deck builder games, no, it's sure. really on the lower end. 100%. Next is, it seems to have an overly complicated terrain system. Because we've already touched on, some monsters do really well in certain terrain, and they can't be played in other terrain. And if you're attacking a city from some sort of terrain, the city gets all of its surrounding terrain, but only on a Tuesday. And if you're attacking an enchanted land, it doesn't get a militia, but it gets a bodyguard. And yeah, like, I agree with you that there are all these tricky little corner things, and most of them are core to the design. And a lot of it is expressed in very particular terminology on the cards. Normally when I'm teaching a game, I seek to abstract away from the technical terminology as much as possible to make it accessible to new players. Sometimes this is a mistake. I still remember the time I taught El Grande entirely using terms like cubes until I remembered that, oh wait, there are action cards that specifically talk about caballeros and the provinces and the court. I'm like, okay, let's start again. There's no good supplier, bad supplier cubes. We now have to have caballeros who go to the provinces or to the court. 
And so when teaching Asgard Sozin, you have to be very careful about words like sacrifice versus banish, and muster versus take, and militia versus bodyguard. When you can play what cards? And I, I talked about that a little bit earlier. And it's just a little bit, as a result, it's a little bit more gritty than I'd like. And that does serve to interrupt the flow. Now, again, allow me to stress, once you've got a few games under your belt, this is a very quick game that flows very smoothly and everything is super clear. But those first couple of games, it can be super intimidating with a whole bunch of, no, you can't play that card then. No, sorry, you can't buy that card because of this thing. No, you can't play this card now. You could have played it this other time, but you didn't. And then this thing, it's like, oh, I get to do this thing. No, 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 that's mustering, not taking. And so, and it's not fun to have to say that to a player. And as a result, I've known a number of players who couldn't quite grasp that terminology and they had a terrible time with Asgard's Chosen. And I'm sympathetic to that. And my only other bad point is the fact that we've had to introduce a house rule. Like we've said at the very beginning of the game, you're going to draft, you're going to turn up a bunch of cards, and you're going to draft two of them. Sometimes, and like we said, luck of the draw. There might be some very high powerful cards in there, so we've just introduced a rule that, you know, uh, over a certain value, you can't pick those, you have to pick the lower ones. Specifically, the card that in, that inspired this house rule is the troll, because the way the troll works is when you trigger the troll ability, not only is the troll uh, one of the strongest uh, early monsters in the game in terms of numerical value, the power of the troll is that it goes back into your hand. So not uncommonly, when we played without this house rule, very, very frequently, and it's a smart thing to do, someone would take the troll, first campaign, play the troll, take the troll back, second campaign, play the troll, take the troll back, Time to muster, use the troll to buy something great. There you go. Awesome first turn, and there's not a whole heck of a lot that anyone can do about it because of just the way the troll works. So now we don't let people take trolls. We don't let people take value three cards. So no dragons, no Fossigim. Well, the Fossigim would be fine, but whatever. The formalism is you can't take level three. We highly recommend this. It's uh, it's one of the only variants that I regularly use for games that I bring back to the table. It's also the case, and I just really want to emphasize this, and it makes me feel petty saying this, but the components are absolutely terrible. The art is great. The art on the cards is great. I love the depictions of the gods. I love the depictions of the monsters. But the problem is that the color matching, which is key to the terrain system, which is one of the key ways how the game works and a key source of confusion, the color matching is not very good. For example, the the, the scrub, also known as a buster, is a terrain that can get no love from me. And the color on the tile doesn't really match the color on the card. Same thing with the bogs, same thing with the hills anyway. So you have to kind of think, wait, is this dark green or is this light green? Which is not awesome. The player aids, which there should have been lots of, because again, the icons matter for, for phases, was literally, I can't, I can't believe this, this was the case even in 2013, something you had to cut out of the rulebook with scissors. It was just a sheet in the rulebook you had to cut out. Like it was some sort of mad magazine from the 1980s. It was bizarre. There was a misprint that they covered with really shoddy quality stickers. Anyway, it's the, the fact that it's unaesthetic and flimsy is problematic, but the fact that it actually impedes understanding of how the terrains match is seriously, seriously problematic. And it's weird because Mayfair used to be the good company, especially when compared to things like Rio Grande, because they reprinted Alia games and Alia games are still very flimsy and, and Mayfair had better uh, better quality components. I tried subbing in minis at one point when playing Asgard's Chosen, specifically from Blood Rage, but they're too big and so they don't really work. I'm I'm okay. I've come to terms with it. And again, once more, once you've played a number of times, the color matching is okay. You accept the fact that this brown is not going to match this other brown and the grays don't match and all these other things. But again, the, that initial barrier to entry for Asgard's Chosen is increased by virtue of the subpar components. The game is also kind of sort of out of print, but the good news is nobody other than us likes it. Well, and by exactly. us, I mean people we play with it. So you can find it on Amazon for, well, sorry, <clears throat> uh, a, a certain major online retailer for hardly any money at all. If you want to go to the Boarding Geek Marketplace, you could probably get it for a $10 bill. 
uh, to the right person. So uh, there's that. Finally, one other minor negative that I have about Asgard's Chosen, and this is this is very much a pet peeve. There's a certain kind of lack of editorial vision. This is in, in a certain way, Asgard's Chosen was ahead of its time. Now every game can be played as a campaign game, as a solo game, as a co-op game, as competitive. Asgard's Chosen is a bit of that. There's a solo version, there's the co-op version, there's the competitive version. If you're playing the competitive version, you can play the intro game, or the beginner game, or the standard game, or the standard game with the optional expert variant, and you can play with or without terrain drafting, and you can play to any number of four to seven victory conditions. And so it's going to take a little bit of effort to figure out how you want to play the game, because they haven't been very clear in the rulebook about the ideal curated way to play. We mostly play to, to five or six victory conditions because four is too quick and we we, we, we don't really follow the intro uh, baby training wheel stuff. But, you know, again, I, I wish that that had been kind of ironed out in the, in the original publication. It's also worth noting that the solo is okay once you use a variant that was posted on Board Game Geek. Otherwise, it's way, way, way too easy. I'll post a link uh, in the episode description as well. And uh, with with that variant, it's actually reasonably tense. So, you know, it's certainly not something I would do on the regular, but it's, uh, it's a good way to learn the game, if nothing else. And that's Asgard's Chosen by Mayfair Games. Yeah, Blast from the Past, as I say, it was published in 2013 and largely flew under the radar and is not very well regarded for reasons that we don't really understand. I think the fact that it's a number of the components are pretty ugly, I think, factors into it. And the barrier to entry probably uh, factors into it too. But it's a very simple game, flows great, has a lot of things going for it that other games don't do. And in a in a market oversaturated with both area control games and uh, deck building games, this is a very, very, very fun, underrated, overlooked gem. And the fact that your two heroes don't really even seem that they come from the same game. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't, though. Yeah. <laughs> the one's like a flat... And the other one's rare. It just it doesn't seem. It seems like they were like sort of tossed. It in. looks a little salvaged or bespoke. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> so that's going to close it out for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's G U S T R O L L D A D I C H gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Guild, which is Guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. That reminds me, Mark, this is episode 70. So we didn't talk about our Patreon. I was hoping you were going to forget. But we, we, you're the one that said we had... No, this was your we, idea. Oh, we have to do... Okay, I thought you wanted Talking to... about money makes me feel dirty. I'm, oh. a, I'm, I'm, I'm a good well, we'll never talk lower about middle class Canadian boy. I'm the one that boy. said we had to restrict it to every fifth episode. But if you don't want to talk about it at all, then we won't even do it on We are five. extremely grateful to our Patreon supporters. We are. We've got lots of Patreon exclusive content. We have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. Done. Take care, everyone. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.